0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In mid-November, Washington and Beijing mutually agreed to start granting journalist visas to each other's journalists again putting an end to months of reciprocal visa rejections and denials. A perhaps minor, yet still significant, thawing amongst a grander narrative of decoupling and worsening relations between the two countries. Cheng Li's Middle Class Shanghai, Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement, published by Brookings in March 2021, plots out a new way to understand the U.S.-China relationship. Cheng Li's book attempts to show the importance of the city of Shanghai to China's economic and political development and studies its population to show the continued value of engagement between America and China. Chung Li is the director of the John L. Thornton China Center and a senior fellow at the, in the foreign policy program at Brookings. He is also the director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. We're joined today as well by Brian Wong. Brian, could you say a few words about yourself? Thank you very much, Nicholas. I'm a Rhodes Scholar, DPhil and politics
2: candidate at Balliol College, Oxford, and a co founder of the Oxford Political Review. I'm also a columnist with the Hong Kong Economic Journal and contributor to the Nate Hand Newsletter.
1: Today, the three of us are going to talk about the city of Shanghai, its importance to China, and why looking at US China relations with the prism of a single city might be a better way to understand the international system. So, Cheng, thank you so much for joining me and Brian today. Um, let's perhaps start with the city of Shanghai. Why focus on Shanghai as a way to understand both China's domestic politics and its relations with the United States?
0: Well, first of all, uh, honor and pleased with both of you. Uh, I'm also glad that you start with the essential question, why Shanghai? Uh, there are three main reasons that I have focused on Shanghai. First, understanding Shanghai is vital to understanding modern China a famous Chinese saying is quite revealing. Uh, it goes like this, to learn about a 2000 year Chinese history, one should visit Xi'an. To understand the 500 year Middle Kingdom, one has to see Beijing. To grasp the past 100 years of changes in China, one must look at Shanghai. Now, secondly, Shanghai is currently the pace setter in China's new search for global power, and its role uh, will shape how China will act and how the outside world will respond to the emergence of global China. But here, I wanted to address my argument that the middle class Shanghai actually reveals China's unsettled future, because Shanghai embodies what I call two tales of a city. As the so-called head of dragon, Shanghai has reflected China's industrial policy and perhaps also state capitalism. But we should not forget that Shanghai has been the frontier city of market reforms, opening up, and cosmopolitanism. Shanghai was, is, and will be deeply uh, integrated into the international system. For example, Shanghai is now the world's busiest container port. Singapore is the second, and by the way, Hong Kong is the seventh. Now, critics of Shanghai and China may reasonably argue that Shanghai is a showcase of China's growing aggressive global global outreach. But it's also true that Shanghai represents the vanguard of the middle class worldly voices, views, and values. Certainly, and most importantly, my book argues that Shanghai and China indeed, should not be uh, perceived in a monolithic and a stagnant way. Its uh, internal contradictions and the paradoxical dynamics deserve much attention. The future of the Shanghai is, of course, unwritten. Uh, in fact, China's tra- trajectory is not predetermined, and it faces serious constraints due to both domestic and international factors. And it's also are uh, embody some interesting contrasts and different options. As Dr. Henry Kissinger recently re- uh, noted, I quote, uh, China is still in the middle of searching for the nature of its place in the world, end quote. How the Chinese dynamics unfold will make a big difference. The United States um, especially granted strategy, strategy toward China, therefore must be holistic multifaceted, forward-looking, and flexible. Unfortunately, um, there's some problem with the current uh, U.S. approach toward China. This is why I uh, has uh, uh, have written this
2: book. So, thank you, Cheng. And I want to ask you a follow-up question on that, which is just how important is and has Shanghai been to China's economic development? And how has that role changed over the past decades, especially since... Uh, so the economic reforms and opening up era on the day.
0: Well, since the early 1990s, Chinese authorities have designated Shanghai as the so-called head of dragon, uh, symbolizing the uh, leading role of Shanghai in China's quest for power and prosperity in the 21st century. Now, this metaphor also suggests that Shanghai leads the Yangtze River uh, Delta region and more broadly, the whole country in China's efforts to uh, play economic catch-up with more developed countries. Now, the degree of favorable policies toward Shanghai has varied from time to time due to changes in the top leadership in Dongnanhai. But Shanghai has set the pace for the country's socioeconomic development uh, over much of the past four decades. Now, by 2019, I mean, before the COVID, 40, and this is also 40 years after China began its economic reforms, national GDP had grown 60 times larger this whole country, and the per capita income 25 times higher. In 1979, China's per capita GDP was less than uh, $300 US dollars, about only 3% of that of the United States. But GDP per capita has increased from about 1,000 US dollars in 2001 to 10,000 in 2020, and it's expected to reach 30,000 by 2035. Now, in Shanghai, uh, per capita GDP already exceeded 23,000 US dollars last year in 2020. Now, so I just use, want to use middle class as a showcase to see the China's uh, Shanghai's role in China's economic development. Now, uh, the books focus on Shanghai, but also documents the remarkable expansion of the middle class throughout the country. 10 years ago, 40% of China's relatively small, urban, middle class residents uh, uh, lived in the four um, uh, cities, what we call tier one city, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen. According to a study uh, conducted by Dominic Barton, and the former head of McKinsey, and most recently, and uh, Canadian ambassador to China, now he uh, is the CEO of um, Rio Tinto, I believe that uh, he got that uh, offer. And also, uh, based on his study, this is really uh, many years ago, along with his colleague at McKinsey, uh, the fast growth of the middle class has really spread beyond uh, these four tier cities, I just mentioned, uh, tier one cities uh, in recent years to other Chinese cities, including Tier two and tier three cities in inland region. By next year, 2022, the proportion of China's middle class that resides in those uh, mega cities uh, is expected to drop you know, uh, to about 16%, from 40% about 20 years ago to 16%, while 17, 76% of the middle class will live in tier two and the tier three cities. That's telling the story, Shanghai. Is a pace setter for China's economic development. Um, yeah, uh, uh, so that's it's very important. It's a pioneer, but it's not just about Shanghai. It's to go beyond Shanghai, go beyond the Yangtze River data, and to be the, the case for the entire country.
1: So you note know in your book that China's been a source. Sorry, not China. Shanghai has been a source for a lot of China's political leadership. Um, and- and so I, guess I kind of wanted to kind of get into, you know, is there something about being based in Shanghai um, that affects the views and mindsets, the politicians that, that come from there? I especially want to focus on um, Jiang Zemin, whose I think reputation has been seen in a, in a much more positive light recently. Um, how did being based in Shanghai affect Jiang Zemin's approach to governing?
0: Um, this is a very good question. Actually, the book has one chapter focusing on Shanghai leaders. Uh, now, first, let me make it clear that the Shanghai leaders have never been identical. In PRC history, there have been some leftist or Maoist radicals, such as Gang Fu, who were all from Shanghai. Uh, there, of course, have been more moderate and well known reform leaders, such as Zhu Rongji and Mayor Xu and of course, that uh, 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 Jiang Zemin as well. Now, having said that, I do believe that leaders of Shanghai origin uh, or those who have uh, spent much of their careers in Shanghai have some distinct uh, distinct features uh, from having run this most cosmopolitan city in the country. It is interesting to point out that after the Tiananmen incident, Deng Xiaoping uh, surprised everyone by designating a Shanghai leader, Jiang Zemin, to be his successor. Uh, in Also in 1990, one year after, Deng Xiaoping said, I quote, one of my big mistakes was I did not include Shanghai when I launched for Special Economic Zoom in 1980s, end quote. Now that same year, Shanghai launched its a historical plan for development of Pudong. Now come let me uh, directly answer your question about Zhang Zemin. As we know, Zhang Zemin, uh, was born here in Shanghai. He studied and worked in Shanghai for many decades, and he liked to be identified as a Shanghainese. Um, now, this experience certainly profoundly um, uh, influenced his cosmopolitan traits, you may argue. Now, he unambiguously embraced Western culture, and he has been known for his uh, uh, endorsement of cultural pluralism and the transnationalism you know, the, my book uh, spent a lot of time talking about architecture in Shanghai, and um, especially since the 1990s and uh, his leadership. And um, uh, uh, but actually, he started that in the middle 1980s when he was a Shanghai leader. Then he f- further uh, uh, encouraged. As we know, that uh, Zhang Zemin allowed an Italian opera, um, you know, p- uh, team to perform in the Forbidden City. That was actually a big no-no at that time uh, for many conservatives. He invited a French architect to design a post-modern grand theater, I mean, uh, for Tiananmen Square. And also urged the Chinese uh, public to watch the American film, Titanic. He said he watched twice. He was deeply moved. This is in his formal remarks in the party meetings. In 1999, China published some um, 5,000 foreign book titles accounting for 10% of the total number of newly published books. This is a truly remarkable, a relatively high percentage compared to the share of the foreign books published in other countries. I think uh, probably only China publishes so many of kind of foreign books. Now, President Jiang has been recognized by many analysts, both in China and abroad, for implementing a moderate approach to crisis such as uh, Taiwan's presidential election in 1996, and the Belgrade embassy bombing in 1999, and the I mean, EP3 airplane crash uh, in Hainan Island in 2001. I mean, similarly, Zhu Rongji also strongly and skillfully pushed for negotiate, negotiation leading to China's uh, accession to WTO uh, 20 years ago. Now, these soft actions or reactions by uh, Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji and other Shanghai leaders were critical were criticized by many chinese at the time but they are now widely regarded by
2: the public as wise policies so so on that question actually i want to ask an interesting follow up which is Essentially, President Xi has been described by some commentators as a social conservative and an economic egalitarian. He also served as secretary of Zhejiang and, briefly, uh, of Shanghai, although he's been noted for having strong connections to various mid-senior-tier to officials that rose up the ranks, uh, both during and also after tenure in Shanghai. Uh, What do you make of Xi's relationship with Shanghai in relation to your thesis just then, and how this has, if at all, shaped his current ideological positions uh, on China's overarching direction? Well, this is a very,
0: very important question. I, I, I think I'm uh, so glad you raised that question. Actually, my uh, book, this chapter, directly answers that question, uh, with the, the title of the chapter is "Fang Jiang to Xi, The Enduring Power and the Inference of the so-called Shanghai Game. Now, Xi Jinping has a, a complicated relationship with the so-called Shanghai Game. Xi Jinping was largely promoted to uh, or endorsed by Jiang Zemin and the former vice president, uh, Zheng Qinghong, who were co-founders of the Shanghai game. So you can say without Jiang Zemin and without Zheng Qinghong, uh, uh, there's no uh, Xi Jinping as a top leader. You can even go that far to argue that. Now, uh, Jiang, uh, Xi Jinping also spent eight months as party chief of Shanghai before moving to Beijing to become designated successor to Hu Jintao in 2007. Now, most importantly, interestingly, Xi Jinping is now surrounded by peace confidants who also advanced their career in Shanghai, including Power Bureau Standing Committee member, uh, Wang Funing, and executive vice premier, Han Zheng. These are two uh, in the uh, 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 in the Power Bureau Standing Committee, uh, seven members of the Power Bureau Standing Committee. I think you can assume that uh, they have a very good relationship, although, Ah, uh, Wang Ning's rise and uh, Han Zheng are more attributed to Jiang Zemin than to uh, uh, Xi Jinping. Now, anti-corruption chief uh, Yang Xiaodu and uh, foreign policy uh, Chief Yang Jiechi and uh, Xi Jinping's chief of staff Ding Xuexiang, they all um you know uh, 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 met Xi Jinping and uh, developed a good relationship. I mean, through um, Shanghai and also through some other uh, uh, you know uh, experiences. So, uh, really, Xi Jinping uh, very boldly promote and and use Shanghai leaders, particularly Ding Xuexiang. I think he first met with him um, when Xi Jinping served eight months as Shanghai Party Chief. Uh, Ding Xuexiang was his Chief of Staff uh, at that time in Shanghai Municipal Party Committee. Now he's the Chief of Staff uh, in the Central Committee in Beijing. And the Ding will likely emerge as one of the most powerful leaders in the country in the next five years and beyond. Now, uh, I would not be surprised that uh, more than half of the Power Bureau Standing Committee members in the 20th Party Congress next uh, October or, or November, um, uh, you know, more than half will uh, likely have served as the top leaders in Shanghai. They, uh, these, uh, they include Xi Jinping, possible Han Zheng, and he is one of the few leading candidates for next premier. Ding Xuexiang, the person I just mentioned, and the Li Qiang, current pa- Shanghai Party uh, boss, and the Li Xi, currently party boss in Guangdong, but served as a senior leader in Shanghai, including head of organization department and also deputy secretary of Shanghai for uh, four years. And also new party bureau member with Shanghai leadership experience, including the candidate, including Ying Yong, the person uh served as Shanghai mayor, then later moved to uh, Fubei, Uh, during the uh, COVID-19 crisis, really did a fantastic job. You know, after he arrived there, uh, uh, to crack down, uh, uh you know, Wuhan, uh, uh, COVID-19. That was a really very critical moment. And also, current mayor uh, Gong Zhen, and also another person, a leader, Shanghai leader, now moved to uh, Gansu, uh, Ying Hong, and uh, and also the Tianjin uh, mayor who previously also served, served as deputy party secretary of Shanghai. You know uh, uh, Liao Guo, uh these are all Shanghai background leaders and um, I think that they are all in a very regular very position now so you can see that uh, Xi Jinping really trust rely on uh Shanghai leader but also the same time you can also say that um, he um, certainly um, you know undermine some of the uh, Shanghai gang members you know that the recent um, you know arrest, are uh, related with the for, former uh, Vice Mayor of Shanghai and also uh, Vice Mayor of Shanghai, Gong uh, Dao An, and also uh, the former Vice Minister of Public Security, uh, Sun Li-Jing, who also served as a uh, Shanghai Vice Mayor before. So that's a very, very interesting uh, development. All these trends show the dynamics and the complicities of China's factional politics. At this uh, pivotal moment in China's rise, with the U.S.-China relationship also, you know, uh, uh, leading towards a great confrontation and hostility, I think uh, for U.S. grasping the internal dyam- dynamics of Chinese uh, communist leadership is more critical than ever. Um, you know, we cannot afford getting things wrong. But unfortunately, there are a lot of, um, uh, 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 you know, rumors, fake news, and uh, uh, wishful thinking, not careful uh, understanding, analysis about Shanghai leader, I hope that the people will pay more attention to importance of Shanghai and the fact that Xi Jinping rely on many cosmopolitan Shanghai leaders. And uh, that's a very, very important observation, uh, uh, um, you know, I think for Western
2: world. Thank you so much, Cheng. And now I going to shift onto sort of broader macro territory here, which is, in your book, you study the attitudes and effects of returnees, the so-called Hai Gui, uh, those who went to the United States to university and then returned. And indeed, um, even Wang Huonien, despite not studying or being a student in America, he himself was a visiting scholar in America where he wrote "Make War which is America against America. Um, so I guess the question I want to ask you is, what do you learn and what are the major findings you to, could I guess, summarize based on your book? And would you say that these findings are changing, given recent circumstances and restrictions and travel and all the uh, miscellaneous transformations to bilateral relations between Washington and Beijing.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned about Wang Funing. I actually, when he came to US in 1988 and to study, and the first stop was UC Berkeley. He uh, worked under with my mentor, Robert Scalpino. And when he came, he also uh, came with the um, um, his teacher at at uh, Fudan, Ni Xiong, and uh, um, so uh, uh, th- so we we share the same si- si- um, similar mentors and uh, in study of uh, in his study in, uh, in the U.S. That he later on also served as visiting scholar at the University of Michigan and also University of Iowa, and. Um, that the book he published he, uh, he wrote that period in 1988 published it in 1991 um you know three years later it's really quite insightful you know you're looking back 30 years there's so much insight um, now of course that uh, my uh, book is not uh, about uh, wang fu ning and uh, i just uh, mentioned him in passing you know when i returned to shanghai as a visiting scholar at fudan he was the dean of that uh, 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 you know, uh, law school in, uh, at the Fudan, but also department chair of the International Relations When I served as a visiting scholar. Although my um, contact with him was very, very limit, limited. Now, but the three chapters of my book really focus on the role of returnees. When people like Wang Funing, when people like uh, Liu He reach that high level and uh, their entire career uh, is spent on the government think tank, you can see that uh, it's a very, very important development. Uh, um, uh, 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 it's a new path for uh, the career uh, elite recruitment. Uh, unlike the previously always find the local government, uh, neither Wang Funing nor Liu He ever serve as the local government, whether it be county, uh, municipal, or province. Now, but of course, in my book, uh, uh, the three chapters on returnees uh, talk about the broader um, kind of impact uh, the depths and the breadth of the educational exchanges between these two countries, with vastly different political systems and ideological ideologies throughout the past four decades have been truly remarkable. Uh, the, sheer num- the sheer number of the Chinese nationals who studied abroad and the tidal wave of the Chinese students and scholars who returned home after completing their overseas education was perhaps beyond anyone's imagination in 1978. When Deng Xiaoping and the President Jimmy Carter launched this educational exchange program, now between uh, 1978 to 2019, about six million PRC citizens studied abroad, with significant percentage going to the United States. Uh, in 2018 alone, over seven hundred thousand Chinese students studied overseas, making China the primary source of international students in other countries. As a result. China was a country that sent the most students to study overseas for 10 consecutive years. In the United States, 360,000 PRC students enrolled in schools that academic year in 2017 to 2018, the academic year, uh, marking the ninth consecutive year that China sent the most foreign students to study in American schools. PRC students account for 33 percent of the total number of international students in the United States that year. Uh, the second uh, country is India, uh, send uh, like 18% uh, of uh, account for 18% of the total number of international students in the U.S. You see the difference. Now, also significant of them return to China. Here, I just want to say, give you an example that how powerful uh, that uh, the, the how inferential this, uh Returnees serve uh, in uh, all walks of life in China, including in educational institutions, research centers, central and local governments, as I mentioned about the central government leaders, but also Shanghai municipal leaders, state and private enterprises, uh, foreign and joint venture companies, law firms, hospitals, clinics, the uh, media networks, and NGOs, name it. Now, um, in terms of the... The uh, give the law. I just want to give an example because my book uh, spent a lot of time talking about the, the influence of the uh, um, you know lawyers with foreign trainings. Now in the Zhongren law firm in Shanghai, one of the top law firms in the country, seventy five out of the one hundred twelve partners in that law firm are foreign educated retainees, accounting for two thirds of the total. A majority of uh, these returning lawyer or law partners actually 64% uh, receive their JD degrees in top law schools in the United States, uh, including Harvard, Columbia, NYU, Stanford, Chicago, and UC Berkeley. And most of them have passed the bar exam in New York. Some also passed the bar exam in California so that they can practice as a licensed attorneys in the key states for international finance and trade. With an increasingly global economy, I mean, globalized economy and with the United States and other Western countries pressing China to meet international norms and standards, especially in regarding uh, uh, to uh, enforcement and uh, compliance with the interle- inter- intellectual property rights. These U.S. educated Chinese lawyers may be instrumental in promoting cooperation and understanding across the Pacific uh, in the years to come. So I think that uh, um, you know, we, we uh, but let the, the, me also mention, uh, but the pervasive view about the bilateral educational and cultural exchanges in Washington is no longer nowadays, it's no longer one of the hope for positive change through engagement, but rather one of the fear that the scholars and the students from the PRC um, attending American educational and research institution are weapons, quote, unquote, weapons of Chinese Communist Party who will... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, speed up China's um, ascent to uh, superpower status in science and technology at the expense of the United States. I think it's a very very narrow minded uh, interpretation. Uh, so those educated elites not only contribute when they return to China, but those who remain in the U.S. also contribute to academic life and uh, uh, various works of life in, in U.S. Not the least to help understand um, uh, 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 changing China. Now, uh, one chapter of my book actually has uh, J. William Forbright's words as an epigraph. I quote here, we must try to expand the boundaries of human wisdom, empathy, and the perception. And there's no way of doing that except through education. Now, my book raises the question, after all, if education cannot bridge minds across the Pacific, what can
1: over so you you mentioned that you have three chapters on education on 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 shanghai's uh, on the returnee population and one of those chapters is on avant-garde artists and i guess i want to quickly ask you know why focus on that particular group of people and what do what does avant-garde art tell us about shanghai and the value of engagement
0: well uh actually um Avant-garde art, um, the, there's a two art
1: chapters in my book.
0: And uh, these are not part of the three educational books. Uh, the educational exchange book, there's uh, three, uh, including one is a survey research based on Horizons uh, uh, multi, multiple year uh, survey research. Uh, the, the two separate chapters are on avant-garde. And uh, avant-garde art, by definition, is ahead of time. They are really quite revealing and uh, some of the criticism of the united states you early on mentioned about wang to talk, uh, uh, talk about the america against america that was probably three uh, decades ago i mean uh avant-garde art are usually located almost 15 20 years ago but it continued until uh, until now um so it's quite really quite remarkable uh uh fascinating to see their discourse they are not a fan of authoritarianism uh they, certainly promote some of the ideas like uh, climate change, uh, uh, equality, social justice, women's rights, civil rights, and et cetera. But uh, they are also quite critical about uh, American arrogance, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, hegemonic thinking, and et cetera. Now, uh, uh, you know, I also want to mention that I read somewhere a few years ago that 70 out of the best-paid avant-garde artists in the world actually had Chinese names. I mean, this is a fascinating finding. Many of them uh, grew up during the Cultural Revolution. I think these dramatic changes in China made them more sophisticated, more critical uh, in in their artwork. Now, many of them live and work in Shanghai. Then um, some of them had opportunity to study in the United States, including Chen Yifei, later Chen Yifei, and uh, Chen Danqing, and uh, Gu Wenda. And also uh, one person is not from uh, Shanghai Xu Bing, a friend of mine. He actually is having an exhibition right now in Shanghai. Uh, he's he is largely based in Beijing, but uh, spent many times, uh, uh, many years in the United States, and also got the Genius Award from uh from MacArthur Foundation. Now, o- over the past decade, China has hosted an average of uh, three hundred international exhibitions every year. A significant portion of which are focused on art and the culture. Now, in recent years, Shanghai has experienced an exponentially rapid expansion of art galleries according to a ranking by the World Cities Culture Forum based in UK. By 2019, Shanghai was ranked third in the world in terms of total number of art galleries, uh, which is uh, 700, uh, 770. Um, behind only New York, uh, it's uh, like a 1,500. And Paris, like 1100. But Shanghai is ahead of the Tokyo, uh, London, Rome, uh, Brussels, and Los Angeles. So it's really quite remarkable. It's a short period of time, Shanghai is catching up. Now, also, I spent a lot of time, I mean, uh, actually, almost one chapter describing the art gallery, the scenes. And uh, the Shanghai municipal government has actually recognized the need to establish excellent museums as the city's landmark, especially designating the, the the eight-mile stretch of land on the newly developed western uh, bond called Xi'an of the Huangpu River as the art district. The four-mile long uh, Longteng Avenue along the western bond has already become um, home to dozens of museums and art galleries. Um, half of them are private-owned, some of them are really gigantic. and um, when the whole project is completed, the, the West Brown will be Asia's largest art corridor. Now, the art gallery boom in Shanghai reflects the uh, the evolving cultural dynamics. Dynamics middle-class residents in this cosmopolitan city have become increasingly dissatisfied with uh, homogeneized products and services, and are now demanding subculture identity, individuality, and diversity. Let me very quickly mention that of course, there are some challenges in terms of political and media control and uh, or censorship in Shanghai as elsewhere in the country. But we should not forget these dynamic scenes and also the soft power um, reflect the Chinese societal uh, uh, development. Uh, China's influence in this area, in art, architecture, music, films, television, I mean, particularly in East and Southeast Asia it's a phenomenon. Now let me also mention that uh, two favorite uh, favorite woman anchor, TV anchor person, one is uh, Dong Qing. She actually comes from the same university. I graduated from Badong Sida, East China Normal University. Um, she is an anchor of many programs, including the most popular called the reader, Weya And another person is Jin is trans uh, uh, um, you know uh gender. Person and uh, she was a dancer. Now uh, later become a late night show host, uh, most popular one. Uh, and, uh, you know for many years, she is now uh, the manager of the Parliament, uh, the traditional nightclub in Shanghai. This is tell you the dynamics of Shanghai. Uh, uh, uh. So I think the Western views about the monolithic thinking of China, of Shanghai, and, um, and even talk about societal threat.
2: This is just completely wrong. So I just want to ask, I guess, a slightly different question concerning education, uh, just picking up on a strand that Nicholas raised just then. It seems to be harder for academic students, journalists, business people and others to travel back and forth between the US and China, whether because of short-term factors like the quarantine or because of other structural, more long-term reasons such as concerns over the tightening space uh, with respect to discourses and uh, Space in the country, um, Cheng. How do you see this this decline uh, in affecting US and China relations, and what's the way out or remedy to this problematic situation?
0: Well, it's a serious problem. And COVID nineteen is uh, decoupling itself in terms of international travel restrictions. Uh, certainly, you know some of the things we are doing, like the online virtual webinar, like such as this. And um also forms of communication like uh, Douyin, like WeChat may help. but still different. We need to have a, a person-to-person contact. We need to close intimate uh, I mean, um, in kind of dialogue, a uh, discourse and the uh, virtual things is uh, still uh, not uh, reach that level. Uh, as we all know that U.S China relations have deteriorated over the past two or three years at a speed and a scope beyond what could have been predicted blame games, propaganda wars, and the conspiracy theories have arisen from both sides of the Pacific. Not only has each side accused the other of being a genocide regime and spec- speculated that the COVID-19 pandemic originated from a lab leak in the other country, but the risk of military confrontation and war between two superpowers is also on the rise, especially given the possibility of a incidents uh, you know, intended or unintended in the Taiwan street. But uh, I also should mention the long-term implication of this pandemic uh, of the century are far from clear. Uh, even prior to the outbreak of the COVID-19, economic de- disparities within and between countries have already given rise to anti-globalization movements across the world. Uh, one can reasonably expect that the cynicism regarding regional and global integration, as well as the racial, um, and radical populism, racism, and xenophobia, will likely all rise across many parts of the world, leading to a transformation of people's mindsets, behaviors, preferences, and priorities. I mean, the when two countries are on the uh, on the course for a major conflict demonization I mean each other is a common practice so we should really stop that we should uh, like the President Biden and President Xi Jinping recently said America or China are both great countries they're great peoples but people now tend to forget that and also U.S. China relations is not just a state-to-state relation but um should be also people-to-people relations now one thing is related to your question is, I think that the China uh, in the recent uh, maybe five to ten years, heavily depend on domestic tourists at the expense of international tourists. That's a major problem, I would say. Now, there's one recent study by um, I think by uh, United Nations and some of it also uh, international organizations find that uh, China's um, only have the, the uh, China's foreign tourists only account for zero point three percent of GDP but that's very very low um the international uh the number is three uh, percent so the the, the country is lower than China let me mention some of them Nigeria and uh, Venezuela Pakistan Kazakhstan Bangladesh Congo and uh, and the Kuwait so I think that's a, this this is a serious problem now Thailand is 12 percent again, China is 0.3 percent. So I hope that after COVID, Chinese government needs to pay more attention and uh, to promote international tourists uh, from all parts of the world. When you visit China, you contact with people, you will find we're all similar in many ways. And uh, certainly that uh, the middle class people, usually tourists are middle class people from other countries, can find the same aspiration and then develop a respect and understanding. So, I think their question embodied that things. But unfortunately, COVID is this more moment. So, to prevent that, so I think uh, uh, hopefully, you know, after COVID is controlled, China will really open up. And even during the current situation, I think China also needs to do some policy adjustment. And uh, uh, to, because the cost is so overwhelming, I mean, uh, 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 you know, I understand uh, the Chinese position and uh, but uh, I think it's a more thoughtful balanced forward looking approach will be
2: very very helpful over Thank you, Cheng. And and, and much of your analysis in the book, it precisely revolves or hinges upon that commonality, right? That sense of sentiment of similarities and converging attitudes between folks in Shanghai and also the counterparts in middle class America, for instance. But I guess this leads us on to a methodological question I want to put to you, which is now there are two views as to this, right? One view is that Shanghai has a model, it's a Shanghai 模式. so there's a model that can be transplanted and applied to other sort of similar cities in the mainland eventually maybe Nanjing, maybe Guangzhou maybe Shenzhen etc. with variations and different degrees or, or some sort of transformations. nevertheless uh, adapting to local circumstances but on, underpinning that thought is that Shanghai can and should be transplanted elsewhere ultimately another thought or another view though is that Shanghai is unique it is a Shanghai particularist view that There's only one Shanghai in mainland China or in China at large, and there's only room therefore for one city of such a construct and configurations. I was wondering if we could pick a break. Do you think Shanghai is exceptional in the second sense? Such that there wouldn't be any transplantability or transferability, or do you actually see your analysis of Shanghai being exceptional as precipitating the first sense where ultimately uh, Beijing Zhongnanhai is seeking to transplant the Shanghai model and move it and shift it to other contexts as well within the country at large?
0: Well, um, this is a complica- complicated question. My book really uh, entirely tried to address that issue. Uh, i think it's both on the one hand shanghai is unique it's china's most westernized country um ironically it's also the birth city of the chinese communism and uh, also was a radical city during the cultural revolution and um, uh, as earlier i mentioned it's the uh, it's the uh, a tale of two cities uh because it's a Yes, you can see uh, the power of state-owned enterprises, industrial policy, and uh, you can even say state capitalism. Uh, uh, but at the same time, Shanghai is the uh, it's market-driven and, uh, and uh, very open-minded. Not only just in economic things, and uh, a lot of experiments. The first stock market and the land leasing to something large-scale commercial land leasing all, all started from Shanghai and uh, and, uh, and the Pudong development really profoundly changed China over the past two two decades, two or three decades. So it's a combination of that. Now, but I, I want to emphasize that uh, we need to look at Shanghai because the Shanghai is a combination of three subcultures. One is local, the other is national, the third is post-cultural. This is not the either or, they can combine together. Uh, form the unique uh, cultural identity and high pie culture, uh, which is uh, profoundly important. So again, this is echo to the theme of the book. We should not look at Shanghai uh, or China in a monolithic term. Uh, this is uh, not the cultural convergence, but the cultural communication, cultural exchanges, right? I mean, culture, I mean, we when we talk about globalization, we refer to economic globalization. We do not refer to cultural globalization, because cultural globalization it's itself, it's, it's a it's a contradiction because this culture is always unique, always uh, uh, it's distinct from other, but does not mean you should be isolated, insulated. And also, uh, no matter how much you change, you Shanghai still maintain some of its characteristics before. But also I want to mention, Shanghai is always China's Shanghai, even under the colonialism or semi-colonialism and the uh, local uh, and the national uh, uh, culture play an important role. So I think it's a combination. Now, but the important thing is this is not, a, in a way, the broad term, it's not unique, just like a New York, just like a Paris, and et cetera. They also have these kind of functions. Now, what I said early on, the middle class and also foreign educated retainees sending students abroad, or uh, Shanghai like a, very much like a cradle, or one of the cradles in China, but then over, uh, they spill over to other regions and the entire country. So in that regard, it's also part of the whole story, but never be will never be the same. There's, there's a, you know, always a, uh, the country is so large. And but the important thing is at the, at the moment the middle class is not just limited in coastal region; they expand. That's actually very good. Uh, 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 uh but when another thing is I think very very important. Uh, when we talk about the uh, U.S.-China relation, we always look at the national level. The, so, there's uh, someone said that uh, it's often said that uh, Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, disagree uh, on everything except, except China with certain truism, uh, uh, um, as I live in Washington. But uh, at the local level, local meaning state or municipal level, it is a different kind of bipartisanship uh, consensus regarding China because local governments, with the legislature and, uh, and the executive branch, I mean, local government, the governors and mayors, they want to engage with China. I mean, they, they established a sister city, sister state for uh, the past two or three decades, uh, whether it be educational and uh, particular economic exchanges are always very, very important. Now, according to one um, US study released a uh, um, few months ago, China is the largest import partner of 15 US states in 2020 last year, including California, New York, Florida, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. These are very important states demographically and politically. I think uh, when we talk about uh, the Americans' current, uh, you know, kind of a, um, very very poor image of China, uh, and also bipartisanship wants to have tough uh, on China, even you know uh, 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 treat China as enemy. But uh, we should be careful. Uh, local level is a little bit different. Yes, there's some criticism of China for understandable reasons, but also the tremendous need for cooperation, for engagement. I hope that my story of Shanghai, in that regard, will resonate well with many people uh live in the U.S. cities. They know that um, they are part of our United States, but also they are uh, uh, unique in its own way. So in that regard, Shanghai probably uh, is not it's not uh, uh, that in exceptional, over.
1: So I have one more question, um, which is, uh, and it's kind of, it's, it's kind of to, to take the central conceit of your book and think about applying it to different countries. What do you gain from looking at a country, whether it's their domestic situation or their standing in the world, through the prism of a single city? And do you think we, someone, might learn something by looking at America's international presence through? just the city of New York, or India's international presence by looking at just the city of Mumbai. Do you think there's value in looking at a country uh, through the prism of one of its commercial capitals?
0: Well, I, I, I do believe that uh, the few things, one is we should avoid monolithic thinking of a country, um, even uh, a city. Uh, as I said, Shanghai is a tale of two cities or multiple uh, uh, dimensions. The others we do need to pay attention to regional differentiations, and uh, the uh, the sad truth we sounds like uh, we study China we only focus on Beijing, uh, maybe Xinjiang, uh, but don't don't forget China is a is a vast different country. There's different regions, different uh, 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 perspective. There's also domestic competition, and uh, uh, you can see that uh, it, uh, during the during Cultural Revolution. Uh, Shanghai subculture is largely suppressed. People only talk about national culture. And for a long time for three or four, uh, two decades, or even longer, Shanghai actually declined. And um, uh, uh, when James Farrell, a distinct American journalist, visited Shanghai, he wrote a piece, I think in early 1980, talking about Shanghai surprise, what surprised him is not about the changes, but rather, no change, you know, during the cultural revolution and the previous three decades. So that tells you a story, a country, a city story could be profoundly important for a country's uh, trajectory. And also that uh, early on mentioned about the subnational interest and the pluralistic nature of, uh, you know, our society. Uh, these are all relevant things I think we should keep in mind. If we uh, consider Shanghai and pay more attention to Shanghai rather than purely Beijing, we may have different conclusion, and uh, uh, so I share uh, the things with many uh, American, uh, you know, journalists who report Shanghai, and also many diplomats who stationed in Shanghai. They all tell me Shanghai in that regard. It's a, just a fascinating story, different from Beijing. Now, um, a Chinese scholar, his name is Yang Dongping. He wrote a a, a book called City of Mang City of Man-Sung. So, all the related to which wind, uh, which, which direction the wind will go. Uh, so, that tells you uh, the importance to study of a shi- uh, city, to study about Hai Pai culture, and uh, to understand China is not just a Beijing, but also a lot of different uh, important cities, different subcultures, and also dynamics um, is always there.
1: Uh, uh, over. So with that, thank you for listening to your interview with Chung Li, author of Middle Class Shanghai Reshaping US China Engagement. Chung, I actually have a couple more final questions, which are uh where can people find your work and what's next for you?
0: Well, the you you can find my work from Brookings website and uh uh brookings.edu but uh I think Hong Kong is okay, but uh, uh, China probably you have difficulties because of uh, um, some um, you know censorship. But uh, uh, my work uh, is uh, is widely translated into Chinese. Uh, they are available and into a lot of interviews. I had a numerous interviews last year and published many articles. Um, uh, and also that uh, like Brian uh, Wang, I published in. Uh, China US focus a lot, South China Morning Post a lot, and the foreign affairs a lot. And um, um, my next book, I'm working on a new book called Xi Jinping's Protejay, Rising Elite Group. Um, you know, this is largely about the, 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 the many new groups that emerge. I already mentioned about the think tank, uh, but also from um, aerospace industry, uh, uh, just like Ma Xingri. Um, you know, who just appointed as a party chief for Xinjiang, who previously um, is governor of Guangdong. He advanced his career, largely from aerospace industry. There are many people similar to him, including Zhejiang, party secretary, uh, Yuan Jiajun, and many others. So uh, these are the people that uh, I think that uh, we do need to know better and more objectively about uh, uh, these leaders Will shape China, and uh, and uh, they uh, certainly are the uh, important, uh, uh, you know, leaders along with uh, you know uh, uh, in the Xi Jinping uh, the third term. So this is the uh, the next book I, I, I'm currently writing writing about.
1: Well, I look forward to learning more about it. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at nick r i gordon. That's n i c k r i g o r d o n. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia, that's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com.
2: Brian, where can people find you? Thank you, Nicholas. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, handle at Brian Wong OPR or alternatively on Facebook, where I run a bilingual Facebook page, Brian Wong Huang Yushun. Uh, yep. Yeah.
0: Well, great. Uh, if I may, I want to add one thing. It's about uh, my middle-class Shanghai book. And it's available by Amazon.com. And also there's a Kindle copy as well. Um, now, the book is really um, uh, 10 years' work. Uh, it's talk about art, architecture, education, politics, and, um, and um, many other uh, uh, related subjects. So, I think that again, um, I'm from Shanghai, and we get a kind of a Shanghai entrepreneurship. But actually all the loyalties go to Brookings and not go to me, but I think it's worthwhile and uh, uh, to look at that when uh, that book. And thank you so much for your interview. Yeah.
1: You'll be you subcribing to, to the Asian Review Books podcast now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends who want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Simantra Bose, author of Kashmir at the Crossroads, Inside a 21st Century Conflict. But before then, thank you so much, Chung, for joining me and Brian today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me.